0: The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. The second yama is called satyam which in Sanskrit is straightforward translated as truth, truthfulness. So the yogis would first recommend that people should stay non-violent. And now the second beautiful advice, the yogis recommend cultivate truthfulness. Now this is indeed a beautiful thing that would make many things in this life more simple, more straightforward, not to resort to lie, to deceit in any form of communication. Uh, but uh, it has also many pluses and minuses it has many pros and contras it has many limitations and of course it has many exaggerations as well that is why we we'll rather have to analyze which are the limits of it what actually was in the mind of the yogis when they said this one exactly as we did for the non-violence we try to understand non-violence as a product of love as we said yesterday the truthfulness the truthfulness is of course we all know what a lie is and you can have of course the intuition that sometimes even silence can be a lie when you let a question unanswered in a certain way then automatically uh, it can be a lie that the body language is a form of communication and you can assume something with your body or let something be presumed and that can also be a lie so it does not refer strictly strictly to the spoken language but yet of course most of it is there. Exaggerations of it are on both sides, for example um, there are people in India who say well the only way of not telling a lie is not telling anything because whatever you tell it is automatically a partial truth, there is no absolute truth in speech. If I'm saying the sun is setting, you're going to say it's true but it's not true in Paris right now. So I should say the sun is setting in Kopangan. Basically, if you really want to make a philosophy of it, uh, you can never say the whole truth and only the truth. And because of this, some people would say, well, speech is automatically relative and speaking and telling things would automatically be a form of lie. And then some people would go in exaggerating and saying, well, we shouldn't speak. Of course, they ignore the functions of the body, language of the silence, of the written messaging and so on and basically that's why the great yogis of India, the great spirits of India and Tibet they never reach to such an extreme. They have said no, here we are talking about truthfulness to the extent of your knowledge and to the extent of common sense language and so on. Things are getting more complicated because we can jump to the opposite extreme and for example you find out that in Mahabharata, in that famous Mahabharata the same famous Krishna, the controversial, the scandalous Krishna he also does it, he does it again he is pushing Yudhishthira, the oldest brother of the Pandavas the man who allegedly says the book never said a lie in his life to tell a lie to end the war because if you wouldn't tell a lie some events wouldn't go in a certain way and so on so he simply tells to Yudhishthira, what do you prefer? do you prefer to tell a lie and save hundreds of thousands of lives with the price of losing your virtue, or you prefer to keep your arrogance that you never said a lie in your life and uh, then to just go on. I mean, would you humble yourself and spoil even your reputation to save lives, or you would do this and this. And Yudhishthira in the end tells a kind of a white lie, a kind of a half lie, and the war is brought to an end by it. So basically here we have Krishna scandalizing again he is pushing Yudhishthira to lie when actually truthfulness was such a moral value was such a beautiful value. It still is not clear, right, we are again going to extremes here is Krishna who says, well it can be done this way also and then you are having also people who wouldn't say a word for the fear of telling a lie. We are between two big extremes and we don't understand then what do the yogis have in mind? Where is the truth? What is the real meaning of this? Exactly like yesterday, then we have to understand what is the story about truthfulness. There must be the truthfulness much more than just the social cohabitation, because then it's exactly like your mother told you, oh, a good boy, a good person, whatever, tells the truth, right. Uh, It's not only this, I'm telling you, the yogis are not moralizing, they don't care about things which were pleasant to Queen Victoria, or to your mother or whatever, they care about the eternal laws of the manifestation and therefore their explanation or their understanding of this story with truthfulness it's touching a much much deeper level. Now trying to go into it, let us say first that the yogis consider and that is a thing to be notified, that people usually lie because of fear, so it is seldom to say that you lie, for example, for defending someone because that's the biggest uh, kind of example, right? What if you have to lie to save a life? Right, the classical example which is given you sit at the crossroad in the forest there comes a small guy, chased, hunted, obviously exhausted after two minutes he passes by running desperate after two, three minutes there comes a big guy, armed, powerful, you know and he says, where did the small guy go? and it's obvious, if you tell him he will catch him and he will kill him or whatever. So, now you don't know the small guy can be a horrible murderer or whatever. You don't have the time to make an inquiry, find out who lies, who tells the truth, who is actually. You are just there in a fraction of a second to answer. Where did the small guy go? There is your choice, right? You can tell a lie and save the life of the small guy. You don't know if it was worth saving it, but you are not God to judge on that either. So basically you can take a responsibility telling a lie, saving a life. You can tell the truth and just say, okay, just get the guy killed, whatever. It's none of my business and so on. But you were part of it, you contributed to it, nevertheless. And in this situation, you have the possibility to refuse answering, which you don't always have. Sometimes they can be straight, embarrassing questions in which if you don't answer, the answer is very clear by the silence itself. In this way, uh, even this one is not a full solution, and therefore we are still having this major problem. What to do about telling the truth or the lies? The yogis would say, first of all, that and remember this because this is a principle, <coughs> that truthfulness shall not be used for harming. That means, first comes Ahimsa, and then there comes Satyam that means in yogic understanding satya is less important than ahimsa if you tell a truth and by telling that truth you cause someone to die then you would have better tell the lie the yogi say or at least you would have better hold your mouth shut to use the truth to cause mayhem, suffering and death and then just to shrug your shoulders and say what do you want from me, I just said the truth yes, it's true but then it is using the truth as a weapon And using the truth for destroying is not the meaning of it. In India they are on the opinion that truth is one of the characteristics of the divinity itself. They speak about God with the words Satyam, Shivam, Sundaram that God is good, God is true and God is beautiful. The three characteristics of the divine consciousness. And therefore, they say there is something divine in this truthfulness because truthfulness is a principle, after all. The Brahmins of Benares, they had this uh, logo, this motto, which was taken over by the Theosophical Society. They said, there is no higher religion than truth. What a beautiful saying, because actually, here we are having an amazing story. It means, uh, what religion, what, what metaphysics, can be higher than truth? Right? Some people quarrel, if there is reincarnation, or there isn't reincarnation. But the truth is only one. So the one who has that truth is automatically closer to the Absolute Truth than the other. Because it cannot be that it is both like this and like that. The Truth is One. So in this way, Truthfulness is simply a reflection of reality. Truthfulness is a principle which allows us to be real, to be exactly the presence, the actual consciousness. That is why Uh, The yogis were very careful with this truthfulness. They said truthfulness is a powerful weapon. Truthfulness is a powerful principle. You have to be careful as you, the way you wield it, because sometimes you can use truthfulness, for example, for killing or for destroying. And then you should have better not said it. I think it's the Arab poet, Khalil Gibran, who says in a beautiful quotation somewhere in his book, The Prophet, Uh, may let the songs be fresh on your lips and go singing or everything about the beauty of life and he says if you see a maiden as beautiful as the dawn tell her about her hair is shining in the morning sun and about her beauty but if you see the one ugly as the gates of hell don't tell him that means according to the thing of truthfulness you see someone beautiful and harmonious you say my god how beautiful you are what a harmony is in you theoretically you see, if you see someone ugly and hideous and maimed and so on you say oh my god how hideous you are Khalil Gibran says hold that truth for you it may be a truth but you are going to hurt someone by saying it it's not nice to tell that truth it's, it's the truthfulness becomes a destruction. You tell a truth to someone who is on the verge of a breakdown and that person goes and commits suicide just because you told a truth. That truth would have better stayed in your chest and not come out. That means the yogis are first of all very clear on this one. Do not use the truthfulness for destruction because the nature of truthfulness is divine. The nature of truthfulness is constructive, therefore it is creative. In this way, I'm telling you all this because uh, there are so many examples, not only Krishna who did it in a case of war. I once read an example of one of the fathers of the desert. The fathers of the desert are some of the great Christian mystics in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth century. The first ones who started it who went out in the desert, in Palestine, in Sinai, in Egypt, in places like this, and they went there and they withdrew in the desert, and they did prayer for years and years, and they are the greatest ascetics of Christianity. And there are stories kept about them, and those stories, they give you goose pimples. It's like you talk about people from another planet. (laughs) It's like you never heard that such people existed on this planet. There are some people of a morality, of a probity, of a spirituality, is incredible, which is amazing, which is so encouraging. It gives you hopes that there still are human beings on this planet and not only people who are twisted and egoistic and so on. And these people, there are stories like, for example, one of them about an old man living in the desert. They all were completely alone and completely broken away from all material things of society and so on. And this old man lived alone. Suddenly there comes a fugitive. This fugitive happens to be a big robber, a big a thief around who had been a murderer basically, a man who had been doing theft and robbery and armed robbery and things like this, killing people and he was chased he was chased by a posse and he comes running desperate and he said, old man or whatever, he called him save my life, he said, I'm the famous robber, this and this, he told him his name which was a very household name, everybody knew about this and he said, I have been mending my ways, it's two years since I'm not doing this anymore, but my reputation keeps going and people still hunt me down because of my old deeds and so on. There is a posse after me. Save my life if you can. So the old man takes him and puts him in a barrel or hides him in a place, and then the posse comes after half an hour. And the guy from the posse, discovering an old saint in the desert, is very respectful, and he says, Sir, did you see we are chasing this famous criminal? You must have heard a murderer and so on. Uh, is he here he was running this way and we thought maybe he took shelter in your place or he passed by did you see him can you give us and the old man who is a man who wouldn't say a, I mean to save his own life he wouldn't say a lie he wouldn't say anything he looks serenely in the eyes of the posse didn't he? he says no I haven't seen him he is not here then the posse of course they believe him 100% because he's a holy old man then they go then this old man takes the thief out of his barrel or hide or whatever and he says go home And do no more, he says. Your life has been saved by God. Do no more. Think about your bad deeds and so on. Basically, this old man would think the human justice can be imperfect. Maybe this man is guilty. Maybe he is not. What do I know? maybe he has repented of his old deeds or whatever, therefore I shall not make myself the judge of my brother. So he said he should be left to the judgment of God. If God wants him dead, he will stumble over a rock and break his skull in a second. He will not live a second over. So he simply said, I have have confidence in the justice of God, which always prevails the justice of man can be corrupted, and so on. So this old man, for example, he took the responsibility to tell a lie. That is why, in yoga, the great yogis have admitted that death can happen. But unfortunately, that's not what people do. That means the yogis admit, ever since Krishna and his famous wartime lie, they admit also the existence of the white light sometimes to stop a person from committing suicide or something you don't need always to rub the truth in the face of everybody the truth says Jesus is like a sword, it cuts at the same time it is not always uh, just bringing peace and understanding sometimes the truth can be a terrible fire and that is why I'm telling you all these Because, paradoxically, in spite of the fact that the yogis and the great mystics and so on, they have been staunch adepts of truthfulness, funny enough, they admitted, at least as a possibility, the existence of the white lie. They said, sometimes it may exist, but now we come to what I told you five minutes ago. People are lying because of fear. People are lying because of egoism. People are lying to defend their reputation, to defend their territory, to hide their forbidden little pleasures and stuff like this. That has nothing to do with the old man who wanted to save a life because he believed in the justice of God, or with Krishna who had to stop a war and save hundreds of thousands of lives that is not about egoism. Those people are having a totally different understanding of it. And that is why the funny thing is that in 99.99% of the cases, truthfulness still prevails. You will not be put many times in your life in the situation of telling a lie to save a life, to tell a lie to stop a war, or things like this. These are exceptional people put in exceptional situations, that's why there is a law in uh, elementary logics which says that exceptions strengthen the rule they don't undermine the rule every rule and every law may have exceptions but because of exceptions you should not undermine a good law or a good rule that is why that's exactly what they are exceptional situations in which exceptional people have had to do to transgress the normal rules that is why the yogis say that the first thing which you get from telling the truth is courage, automatically, because you lie mostly because the root cause, the psychological root cause is fear. They say that the person who dares to tell the truth, exception made when destroying and harming someone, but the person who else dares to tell the truth, this is how I am, this is what I think, and so on, is a person who has courage. Besides courage, your papers of today give a list of 12 psychic abilities, which are strengthened by telling the truth, such as modesty, self-control, the lack of stupid emulation, and other such things which are very very beautiful. So basically the yogis would say that cultivating truthfulness automatically means cultivating heroism and courage, and it also means cultivating a lot of psychological virtues, which if we don't have them, they prevent us from telling the truth. That is why the yogis again would say, exception made of the times when it is doubtful that you are going to hurt someone, then automatically truthfulness shall prevail. Now, things are very complicated still. I mean, people say, right, you still didn't tell us why, and, okay, it's nice to tell the truth, you know, it's kind of, it's a social thing. Everybody says, you know, people should be honest and tell the truth, it would be a better world, blah, blah, blah. And, okay, we have this thing with don't tell uh, too painful truths to people who cannot take it because they might go and commit suicide or whatever. That's also kind of, we can understand that. But still the point is, Why? Where where is the big point in this story with the truthfulness? Why such a focusing on telling the truth? If you don't tell the truth, okay, sometimes it's karma, right? You lie blatantly to steal, to whatever, that's another story. We are talking now about truthfulness as a principle. So people say what? If somebody is asking you if you are... uh, what age you have, and instead of saying you are 35, you say you are 34, what difference will it make? I mean, after all, it's just a lie. Uh, will that create negative karma? Will that spoil your meditation? Will that, I mean, why can't you do yoga and say a little innocent lie here and there? To understand that, we have to look a little bit from a yogic standpoint and from a spiritual standpoint on the understanding of what speech is. Speech, yes? The word. The capacity of using words we human beings today we don't seem to realize anymore what speech is what is speech oh it's a function and what do you do with your speech blah 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 we live in a world which is full of words right everywhere we are drowned we are flooded by speech we have media we have newspapers we have radio television internet books whatever words 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 very often we even know that some of them lie and we say oh this guy in cnn or whatever they lie as they speak you know i mean it's kind of you know basically you can say much of it is untrue we really don't seem to put much price on it but if you study tradition you will see that the people in the old tradition in Vedic tradition, in the Western tradition, and others, they had a religious respect for word, for speech. They considered that speech is of a divine nature, because, first of all, it seems to be what di- distinguishes us from animals. The animals have language. They can communicate primitively, but they do not have an articulated language, a speech. No animal, not even the dolphins, or the whales, or the elephants, or the chimps, or whoever, they do not have articulated language. And we human beings, we are also the only ones on this planet who are having consciousness. We can say, I am the reflexive consciousness. So the great yogis of the tradition, they simply put two and two together, and they realized from the beginning, wow! So, speech is the vehicle or the manifestation of consciousness. Consciousness is speech, this function of consciousness is actually made possible by the fact that I can speak concepts by articulated language so then they realize, whoa, speech is divine, that means people in the old days they had a big respect for the word they even said, by my word, on my word you take, that means people consider that a word is a word, to tell a word And not to respect that word is like the most fake thing which you can do. It's like you falsify reality. Moreover, Satyam, God is Shivam, Satyam, Sundaram. It's like the nature of the divine. Not to be in truthfulness is like to be separate from your own divine nature. It's like, it's a very deep thing. That means, (coughs) look on the traditions. The Bible starts with the words, And God said, let there be light god did not think god did not visualize god said so the word begins i'm sorry the world begins with a word the world is created by the word by the speech and god said so even creation is a function of the word in the gospel of john it begins with a flabbergasting paragraph It says in the beginning, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. It's an amazing thing, right? I mean, speaking about the Word, the Word, the Speech, the Logos, as the Greeks called it, as being of the nature of the Divine. In India, you find the same concept, it is called Shabda Brahman. Brahman, the Absolute, or God in Vedanta, God as Word, expressed as the Word vibration. In the old days, people had uh, an amazing respect, for example, books and written things, which were so rare, because they were manuscripts. And people who could read, and people who could speak the Word, they were considered magical. The Word was having an enormous power. But the yogis say, today we don't feel it, because we are drowned in so many, and they are empty words. That means it's like they are diluted. It's exactly like you have a wine and you put it in a hundred liters of water. You don't feel it anymore. It's like it's completely diluted. And in this way, the yogis say there is a power of the word. The words have power. If you say a word, it means consciousness, and consciousness means reality. For example, with a word, you can do a blessing. You can say to a human being, May you be healthy. That's health. It's a blessing, and it works. Didn't, doesn't it work? Doesn't everybody say, oh, well, I was blessed, I received the blessing, and so on. Blessing is a word in Latin. The word blessing is benedictio. Benedictio is to say good. benedictio, dictio dictio. To say benedictio is ta- talking the good, telling the good thing. But for example, if instead of a benedictio, you send someone to hell, that is a curse and a curse is a terrible thing, because it's like black magic. If you tell to someone, may you be healthy and prosper, that's a blessing. But if you tell to someone, may you go to, you know where, that's a terrible thing, because it happens. The thing is that we don't see it because our speech is so diluted. And people say, ah, now you are trying to tell me that if I tell to Michael to go to wherever, you know, he will actually go there or he will be pushed one millimeter in his way to hell or whatever. Actually, yes, the word has power but we don't notice it because our words are so weak. The yogis say you can look at the power of the word, it appears sometimes even in our diluted speech, In uh, some peculiar situations, for example, the blunder. You are in the middle of a party or of a social gathering, you are speaking about something, and suddenly you splash out a word or something, a truth, which you shouldn't have said there. It's what the French call la gaffe. You know, when you make a big blunder, and, and suddenly you say something, and everybody is like frozen, everybody is like, you splashed in the middle of everybody, and you say, what have I done, you know, and it's a whole avalanche, sometimes a word can start a war because you said a thing in a place where it shouldn't have said, and its consequences can lead, for example, to war so this is exactly what I say, the word has an enormous power, but we don't see it in the old days, people had this religious respect to word, there's a beautiful paragraph in Mahabharata Arjuna the most uh, heroic of the five brothers in that novel he comes uh, bustling with energy in the room of his mother in the palace and he uh, opens the door and he says mom guess what i have won and his mother she was doing some handwork or something she was not even looking at the door so even without looking at the door she immediately replies whatever you have won you must share it with your brothers And Arjuna says, mom, he starts laughing, he says, you don't let me tell you what it is all about. I won the right to marry the princess of this kingdom because I was the best archer. I joined at the heroic meeting of men, I was selected as the best warrior, the best archer. And then I was offered the possibility to marry with the princess. She said she liked me and she would like to take me and I like her. So we are going, I mean, it appears like I can marry the princess. And you know his mom what she said? said, I'm sorry, but the destiny has crept in our lives through my words said inadvertently. But a word is a word, and it cannot be taken back. So what I said stays, because you should not just say stupid words, and they say, ah, bollocks, pol- pol- I didn't mean it. Ah, ah, ah. This is not words, this is words without power. If you tell, if you have this kind of word, and tell to someone, may you be healthy, what health? Because your words mean nothing. They are empty of power, but if you are like the mother of Arjuna and respect your words and whatever you say is so, then your words become powerful. You recharge them. So in this way the mother of Arjuna said, I'm sorry. The principle is a principle, a word once said cannot be taken back. And they asked Draupadi, the woman in question, the princess in question, and she agreed to get married with all five. So she is the first woman in Indian history who had five husbands just because this woman said well you should share with your brothers whatever you have got that means it's a word we are persons of our word when we say a word let it be a word let it be so if not you better kept it silent so many people in India and others they for example kept vows of silence oh I'm a chatterbox blah 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 so what do I do? I shut up 24 hours 7 days 7 years There are people who have been practicing Mauna 12 years. The longest, which I know, is Meher Baba. He practiced this false silence for 40 years. He didn't say anything. If he wanted something, he just wrote a few words on it. Because he said, word is precious. This power of the word, which can modify reality, comes according to the yogis from Vishuddha, the throat chakra, and this entails this power of extreme purity. That is why the yogis consider Vishuddha chakra a very, very powerful chakra. They say when this chakra is truly activated, one can bless, but one can also curse, so one should be careful. Therefore, I would like to call your attention on a funny thing. In yoga, you are going to see, I am giving you examples that Krishna did that, that Gurdjieff did that, that that old man from the fathers of the desert did that and so on you are going to find very diverse uh, spiritual behaviors but one thing will be very constant to my knowledge until today I have never seen in the spiritual world or never heard or read the history of anyone who was a spiritual being and who for example used words for cursing and blasphemy never because they are very very peculiar about the word we are very careless in our culture we just say words and we don't mean what we say but that's probably exactly the problem they say that's why we are fake and we are not attuned to reality that's why we live in a dream and we are not where we should be the word should be a word that means when you say may you be healthy it should happen that's the power of the speech therefore It's a matter, technically speaking, of Vishuddha Chakra, but remember that this is a Divine Principle. Again, you will never find a person of Spirit, for example, cursing, sending people to hell or whatever, because such a person knows that if you do it, it happens, it actually has an effect. Maybe you don't have the power to do it once, but if you say it a million times, like you go there, go there, go there, It will happen, perhaps. It's like a mantra, you know. This is what mantras are for some people. Formulas, which if repeated enough, they happen. Basically, it's the power of speech. The speech can create realities. And God said, look at the example of Jesus. People come to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus says, do you believe that I? Yes. Then... Stand up and go home. He basically says, he doesn't do hocus pocus, oh, let me do some magnetic passes. No. He says, rise, stand up, take your bed and go home. And the people just go just because it is said. This is the magic of the word. You tell to someone, stand up, even when he rises the dead. He goes in front of the tomb of Lazarus and he doesn't go to give a massage to Lazarus to stand him up from the grave. He stands in front of the grave and says, Lazarus, come forth. You know, and the dead man stands up, what power is this which makes the voice, which makes the speech become reality? This is the power of truthfulness. We have lost it, we are fake, we are discharged. People in the tradition value their words. There were monks in Christianity, they had a vow, for example, that they should not speak more than seven words per day. That was besides the words of prayer and the words of the mass, when they were serving the religious service. But else, besides what they did in there, they should not use more than seven words per day. They said seven words is enough to make yourself understood and so on. If you do more, you speak too much simply. You start losing the power of the speech. Therefore. This is a very puritanical thing. It says your Vishuddha chakra, if you hold a little bit, if you stop babbling, if you stop chatting too much, if you stop telling lies, because that is the big story, your Vishuddha chakra gets activated. That means uh, in the old days, as I told you, the world was considered to be a creator of reality. Look at it. There are so many things in history where people, for example, they delivered a curse and it has been fulfilled like for example the master of the Templar order who cursed the kings of France for 13th generations so all the kings for 13th generations were cursed because this man on the pyre when he was burnt he said I'm cursing you for 13 generations and whatever and whatever and when this ended it was a time when John of Arc came and saved France from its dramatic history so basically I'm telling you all this Because we really don't understand the power of the voice. People think that telling this and telling this and doing telling this and that is just the same, you know, it won't make any difference. The yogis say it makes a huge difference. In yoga, as you become more powerful, more pure, more concentrated, and as you start going into this kind of things, your speech will become powerful. That is why some people talk and they cannot touch your heart. That's why some people talk and they cannot convince anybody of anything, and some people's speech has power. It is powerful because it reflects truthfulness. The yogis say that even that leads to a paranormal power. But before we go there, let's give a few more examples. That means how does this power of the speech work? It means anything one says, it simply becomes truth. In the Old Testament, you find one of the old prophets of the Jewish people that at some point he gets pissed off on some local king and he says, Now, because, not because of God's power, but because I say so, because you behaved in such irreligious and stupid ways, it shall not rain in your country for three years. It was Elijah, the prophet Elijah. And anybody knows that in Israel, if it doesn't rain for three years, you can as well commit harakiri in those days at least right you can as well camp you know pick up your camp and go immigrate to another place and indeed that country disappeared because it didn't rain for three years and those people had to immigrate in another place and their country was gone because a mad prophet said because i say so it shall not rain it's the word if i give an order the nature obeys it just because i said so Like that man who said, stand up, take your bed and go home. Be healthy. From now, you are healthy. Your sins are forgiven. Today, now, because I said so. What an amazing power. The speech is creating reality. And that is why it should be used with great care. I could continue with this kind of uh, examples. There is a miracle in the fathers of the desert where one of them, for example, raised a child. A father comes with a boy. Uh, they came to visit saints in the desert because they walked in those days in the 4th century, 5th century, this was a whole adventure. They walked and walked, they reached, they discover one of these guys somewhere in the middle of the desert. It's a story from Sinai, uh, from Sinai, this one. And they discover a saint and the guy, they knock at the door, they see a hot cave, something like this. They knock discreetly at the door, nobody answers. They assume the guy is in prayer, in meditation, something they wait patiently they had to wait for hours because these guys when they were praying they were completely absorbed in divine consciousness and they forgot about themselves so they wait and wait while they wait the, the child is bitten by a viper by basically by an adder by a venomous snake and dies the old the father is desperate it's true in the 5th century people took death much easier than today but still his child is dead there so he thinks what to do, you know, it's nobody's fault, it's just an accident, it's just a stupid venomous snake. So, he says at least let my, the soul of my child get a blessing from this old man, when this old saint will come out. So he puts his child in a prostrate position, in a cow towing position, and as soon as he hears the old man moving inside and coming at the door, he puts himself like this, and it's like they wait for a blessing. So the old man comes out, he looks at them, He says, man, your faith is much bigger than mine, you know, you have so much faith, you came so many kilometers and so many dangers and so on, just to see a stupid old man like me, you know, who lives alone for his own sins and so on, he says, you have, you are encouraging for me, he says, you have more faith than I do, I am miserable compared with you. Of course, he being extremely modest, because he was actually a very advanced being, and uh, then he says, oh, you deserve a blessing, right, and he gives them a blessing, he blesses them both, and he says, now, go. And the old man stands up and this fervor and he wants to go, but the child doesn't move. And the old monk thinking that the child insists or he didn't hear, he says, child, I said stand up and go home, it's enough. And the child stands up and goes. And the father comes after two minutes and he says, man, you know what you did? My child was dead already since hours, And you have brought it back to life by told, telling it to And then the old man said, please, don't tell anybody what you have seen. Uh, Is it's just the divine power playing in this way so basically uh, he says don't tell to people because then they will come and spoil my peace and worship me like I'm a big saint or no, no, I'm nothing he said I'm just an old man and so on and then because it was too much for him even this he just picked up his things and he ran out in the desert and nobody saw him again nobody knew where he lived or what he did after so basically this man just said a word even without an intention and it happened what a powerful word in Christianity still, there is this story with, <coughs> there is a, the biggest miracle ascribed to one of these saints, is a man in Ethiopia, in today's Eritrea, who moved the mountain. There is a mountain which allegedly is moved from its place by a monk called Saint Mark, who lived 90 years alone in the desert, allegedly when he was discovered he was 138 years of age, he had lived the last 90 years of his life alone, and among others, He did incredible miracles and so on, and among others at some point he asks the guy who discovered him by a vision. A guy had a vision and went there and discovered him. The end of the world in Eritrea in those days, what was it? He goes and at some point this old monk asks him, are there still people in the world out there who live by the word of our Lord? And the guy is puzzled because this guy went out of the world, out of the civilized world, before Christianity became a state religion and when the Christians were persecuted they had to run from a persecution and whatever and now Christianity was already safe it was a state religion Constantine had made it a state religion and so on so this guy is like because this guy was a hundred his history stopped a hundred years ago and ninety years ago and now the world was very much changed so this guy is puzzled you know what is this crazy monk talking about you know says what do you mean if they are still out there Christians, And the guy gets, and he says, are there still out there people who live by the word of our Lord, who said that if you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you will tell to this mountain, move and throw yourself into the sea, and the mountain shall move. And in that moment a huge earthquake started, and the mountain started moving towards the sea. And the monk just stretches in, and he says, mountain, I'm not talking to you. I was speaking to this brother just by way of example, and so on and the mountain stopped. It can be just a crazy legend like many others, but fact is that in that point where the cave of St. Mark is kept in Ethiopia, they say that there is a mountain, I have never been to see it, but they say that there is a mountain which is geologically impossible. It's completely out of the chain of mountains, it's like one kilometer away, nobody can explain how that mountain reached where it is because it doesn't fit with anything it's like it has been moved artificially and the legends say that actually it was moved by a crazy mystic called Saint Mark who spent 90 years in, pre- in prayer and he actually got to this power that he whatever he said happened the yogis say this is Vaksidi the power of the word the power of the word is interpreted in some yoga texts as prophecy that means you will tell the truth because you saw it in advance if I say tomorrow it shall rain it shall rain because actually I saw it I'm like Nostradamus that's also Vishuddha chakra actually so I saw that it will rain and I'm telling a true prophecy of the future but other people say no it's not the complete truth it will rain because you said it so basically it's like what was before the hen or the egg the yogis say it's the same thing but look from two different ends of the rope. It's the same phenomenon. It's what uh, Jung, Carl Jung, the psychologist, they call, he called synchronicity. That actually something is happening and you don't know if it was determined by one or by the other. There are two synchronous events. Somebody said it will rain and the rain comes. You don't know if he said it because of the rain or if the rain happened because he said it. It's just one continuum event. It's just two things which make one this synchronous thing the yogi say that it comes through vishuddha through telling the truthfulness it is as simple as that the yogi say if you tell the truth today and if you tell the truth tomorrow and if you tell the truth every single time scrupulously in 20 years you will develop such a synchronicity with nature because whatever you tell is true so it's like a perfect coincidence between your speech and what you know to be real and your conscience And basically, if after twenty years you say something, it kind of has to be true, because you are the one who never sells lies, you are the one who always corresponds to truthfulness. And I told you, truth means reality, and truth means consciousness. That is why the yogis say that through the practice of truthfulness, you will develop Vaksidi, the power of the speech, the paranormal speech, that whatever the yogi says, becomes reality. Mahatma Gandhi praised Satyam to such an extent, that actually although Mahatma Gandhi is famous for non-violence and his non-violent liberation of India, when he was asked to write his self-biography, Mahatma Gandhi called his biography he wrote the book you can buy it everywhere in the world it is called Mohandas K. Gandhi a self biography and it has a subtitle which is called my experiment with truth Mahatma Gandhi all his life he tried to tell the truth whatever the cost of it would be just to live in truthfulness the people who wanted to be his disciples who considered Mahatma Gandhi guru he called them satyagrahas satyagrahis people practice truthfulness people who live in truthfulness he considered truthfulness such an amazing value and he considered that the human spirit can develop so much of it i hope you understood a little bit as idea the metaphysics of it don't forget truth speech is reality and speech is consciousness so this connection makes actually that uh, right speech is creating harmony that is why the yogis say your meditation will be reaching, indeed, if you are truthful. If you are not truthful, it's like you live in a lie, and it's like your consciousness is adulterated, it's like you live in a cartoon, you live in a big lie, you don't live in reality, because you don't speak the truth. That is why the yogis say, even spiritually and metaphysically speaking, it is very, very beautiful, important, useful, practice truthfulness. Ah, that one day you will tell a white lie to save I don't know whose life? That is possible. But until that day comes, in the things which concern your beloved ego, your beloved reputation, your beloved little things to defend here and there, you better think twice before telling lies. Because the yogi say you could gain so much spiritually by practicing truthfulness. To show you that indeed exceptions are not there, I will conclude this lecture on truthfulness with a beautiful example which Swami Rama gives in his book Living with Himalayan Masters. He says there is a guy from the Indian Railroad, it's an example taken from 1940s or something, early time. There is a guy working in the Indian Railroad, a friend of his, a colleague, I don't remember now what he was, and he goes to a guru in Uttarkashi somewhere far north in the Himalayas and he visits a guru out of piousness and this guru is a very advanced yogi and this guy goes to this guru and he says Guruji, please teach me some yoga. The old man
1: looks at him, he's a very deep going yogi. He looks at him and he says, why do you waste your time and my time? Why do you waste your energy and my energy? What you're asking me is bullets because you are a busy person, you have a job, you have a family, you have obligations, you will not be able to do the yoga which I give you to do, you don't have time for that. So why do you come and pester me with stupid requests when you know that it's a utopia? And this man insists and he says, what you say is true, and it is true that I am caught in a web of obligations. I have family, I have job, I have a lot of things. But he says, I still am having this desire to practice spirituality. There is still in me this need. So he says, since you are such a knowledgeable yogi, such a great spiritual person, teach me. Teach me something which I can do at my level. Okay. It's true, I cannot be like you and sit eight hours in meditation and things like this. But teach me something which I can do in my life, because there must be some life for my life as well. And this old guru, he's very impressed. He says, wow, you know, what an aspiration, this man really wants. And he thinks a little bit, and then he tells him a very beautiful one. He says, okay, I'm going to give you a discipline for your level, for your school, something which you can do at your level. So he tells him, starting with today, for the next 30 days, on my responsibility, it is very important. He says it's not yours. Let it be on my shoulders. This is my responsibility. So he says from today, thirty days, on my responsibility, you should just tell the truth. Practice perfect truthfulness for thirty days. This guy goes home, not more than a week passes, actually two days or three days, and there comes an inspection in the railroad company. And the inspectors, they are making their yearly survey. And they ask some regular questions, but for the first time in the history of the Indian Railway, probably one clerk answers honestly, and he says, yes, there is corruption, yes, everybody is corrupted, yes, we take bribes, yes, we do all kind of fake things, yes, I also take bribes, yes, even you, the inspectors who is asking me these things, you are pulling the money with us, and you are taking also the bribes and everything. I mean everybody knew it because that was the system, but for the first time an idiot put it on paper. So since it was on paper, now it became a case. It had to be solved somehow. So what happened? The inspectors speak with everybody in the railway station and they all started bearing false witness (laughs) that yes, this guy is corrupt, he takes bribes, he is a fake, but only he does it and we all others, we of course, we are very clean and honest. But he just says so because he is trying to pull us into the abyss after him. So basically the guy is suddenly the black sheep of the railroad, he is condemned for bribery, there is a civil force immediately put, and there he is, he needs to pay 100,000 rupees, which in that time was a horrible, horribly big sum, he has to pay a huge fine, He's fired out of his job, he has to pay 100,000 rupees, and uh, if not, he'll have to go in prison. Of course, he doesn't have 100,000 rupees, so he has to go in prison instead. When he comes home, his wife says, Boy, you are the most stupid man ever stretched on the surface of the earth. I mean, you have a wife, you have a child, you have responsibilities. Now it's like you are born yesterday. Now you have to tell the truth. What about me? What about our child? Who will give us food? You will never get a job again. Moreover, you will go in prison. You have debts to the state. What will you do? You are an idiot. You know, you have to tell the truth. She said, Go quickly and apologize to everybody and change your statement and declare something else. The guy doesn't want to do it. No, my guru told me 30 days I should just tell the truth. His wife says, you are an idiot. I'm going to my mother. You know, I cannot stay with a man like you because you are totally irresponsible. She goes, the guy goes in prison. Then the incredible coincidence, because you see, nothing is coincidence. The incredible coincidence happens. Another department of the Indian Railroad discovered that they had to pay money to him because when the British built the railroad, they confiscated land from different peasants. And now they are paying back for the land slowly, slowly, year by year, they were paying back. And he was actually the only inheritor of his grandfather and he had to receive the money. And when he looked at the cheque which he is receiving, it's exactly 98,000 rupees or something like this. It's exactly like the sum which he had to pay in fine, 2,000 rupees difference or something. So the guy cashes the cheque, pays his fee, he's out of the prison, the month is over. Now he doesn't have a job, he has a file in the police, he's completely bankrupt financially, he doesn't have a family, a wife, anything anymore and exactly as somebody in Rishikesh noticed, humoristically but now indeed he has the time to do a lot of yoga finally and somebody asks him so what are you going to do now and his answer is so beautiful and it sums up the essence of Satyam he says he's telling the truth only for 30 days could change my life so much where I was a month ago and when I am now my life went into the total revolution so he says if my life has changed so much in just 30 days because of telling the truth, I'm going to try to tell the truth till the end of my life because it's a really wonderful adventure. It's a really wonderful thing. Look, on only three, 30 days of telling the truth and my life is something completely different. So he said, I'm going to try to tell the truth till the end of my life to see what will happen because this is really, really beautiful. So in this way, that reflects the yogic dream about truthfulness, that one can live in truthfulness, one can practice truthfulness and one should respect speech, because speech is not just an organ, you know, anatomists, physiologists, anthropologists and other people say, ah, the human being is just a talking animal, is an animal endowed with the gift of speech. The yogis would say, speech is what makes you similar to God, and God says, let there be light. Basically, to speak is to have access to consciousness. That is why the yogis of India and Tibet, as well as the Buddha himself and others, they have said that the human being is the only creature on this planet, yet created, which can reach samadhi, which can reach nirvana, which can reach, that means, cows, and dolphins, and monkeys, and whales, and elephants, and you name it, they cannot reach nirvana. They cannot reach enlightenment, enlightenment is only the human being can reach it. Maybe in 5000 years there will appear a new race of beings on earth, a mutation or something. Maybe there will exist another creature who will be even more advanced or comparable to human beings. But until now on this planet, the human being is the only creature that can reach the state of spiritual realization. The yogis say that makes the human being totally different and the difference of this is of course
0: The speech. That is why one should have a reverence to the speech, because with the speech we can express truth and with the speech we can express consciousness, we can express reality. In this way, that's the beautiful story. In the papers that you have received today, you have another few beautiful examples of truthfulness. For example, the great poet of India and writer Vyasa, Vyasa Deva, has some wonderful considerations about truthfulness and so on. And all in all, the yogis consider that practicing truthfulness is a
1: beautiful, wonderful thing. Again, the yogis definitely accept that there exist white lies, but they also admit that this is an exception to the rule,
0: which is very, very rare. And again I'm telling you, if you ask yourselves how many times in my life will I have to tell a lie to save a life? Probably none, never in your life or maybe once in your life if you are an exceptional person so basically don't rely on that exception made of such situations which are the exception exception made of them truthfulness is the law the yogi say one should practice truthfulness that is the right way to be as a human being i'll not say more you got the point here and everything you'll read all those things in the papers please read because i'm trying to tell you things which are not in the papers, so that what I'm telling here plus what you read in the papers should be a complete uh, information and in this way we finished it for now I'll take in a second your questions and everything tomorrow morning teaching as usually a new yoga technique 8.30 the normal program and tomorrow afternoon the same as you know I'm warning you again reminding you again that Sunday you have a free day for different things that you might wish to do on Sunday, because this Sunday there will be no teaching. It's our first free day since ten days or so.
1: I'm on your side, questions, problems, not necessarily concerning this, concerning Ahimsa yesterday, concerning the lecture of this morning with sublimation of energy, which is so important, so radical,
0: concerning your yoga practice, concerning administrative things, concerning anything. You might have any questions, please come with them at this time. Mm-hmm.
2: Breaking
1: Ahimsa can meditation,
0: right? No, breaking Ahimsa will give you a negative karma and when you will go to meditation you will fall and break your leg and you will never reach to do the meditation again. Breaking Ahimsa will simply damage your life and you will never reach to do, to fulfill your dreams. If you kill, you will be killed. If you are killed, there is no more meditation, full stop. So Sometimes the um, aggression of animals may be a reflection of some imperfections of ahimsa. For example, uh, you can notice that the aggression of animals concerning you diminishes the more you practice ahimsa. So it is, you know there are two people sleeping in the same room one gets bitten by all the mosquitoes in the world one doesn't right? and you can ask yourself why? and people say oh you must have a very sweet blood and they like you more than me I'm the sour one, they don't like my taste but in yoga you would also say that aggression creates aggression, it calls for a response from nature so it may be these are the small levels, I mean first it starts at the big levels and then yes you will notice it at small levels as well
2: Is there always a kind of divine balance in the universe that there are groups who are dedicated to truth, who always want to speak the truth, if it's the Christians, whoever, versus if there are groups who are dedicated to lying or achieving their ends by any means whatsoever, how can you stand up to them? Or, like this railway clerk, will there be some miraculous force from some higher level will always intervene? and good will always triumph even though you lay yourself open to all sorts of uh, horrors when a Hitler who will lie or whatever do whatever to achieve his ends or are you a fool to tell the truth with these people, you have to use their means against them otherwise they will destroy you and will be no more good people
0: to protect and that depends how far you are willing to go theoretically to answer your middle question in this Uh, I will say exactly as Leibniz said in the Middle Ages and I would agree with this, the truthfulness and the goodness always prevails because in this universe there is only one universal consciousness and the rest, what seems to be opposed to it, is just darkness, darkness is the absence of light, when you turn on the light the the darkness disappears through the very presence of light, that is why Uh, bad or evil is just the absence of good. It's not the opposite of it, it's just the absence of it. When good is there, then evil cannot exist anymore. That is why, uh, first of all, yes, all the great spiritual people of this planet, they unshakably believe that good always triumphs in the end. Because there is only one God, there is only one Supreme Consciousness, and it's not like in some Christian legends that, uh, you know, the, the lore, you know, what people vehiculate at uh, childish levels that, you know, there is a fight between the devil and God. How could the devil fight God? Because after all, if you take it like this, there is only one creator of this universe. And then you have to admit that the devil, in the Christian metaphysics, you know, it's a symbol, after all, that the, that the devil is created by God himself. Because the devil could not have created himself. If he created himself, the devil is as big as God. But the devil is an angel which is fallen, and therefore it's created by God himself. And you know, many stories in Christian lore, just a second, I want to finish this idea, they even have funny things. Like the God is not angry with the devil, God is talking to the devil often. The devil comes to God and says, I have is not to right and I'm going to prove it to you and God said ok let's see it's like two friends who are chatting at a beer glass you know it's not like uh, enmity it's like the devil has got a function the evil has got a function to fulfill it tests it filters it tempts you you know you want to do yoga and it is the right of the devil to come and to try not to make you do yoga mm. you know because he is put there to tempt you It's his function to try to distract you from there. There is a beautiful story in Mount Athos in Greece about uh, Saint Anthony the Great of the Greeks who reached allegedly, according to the legends, he reached such a huge metaphysical power that he could materialize the demons and beat them up. He had a stick which was made of iron, an iron bar and he was beating the devils with a stick and that stick still exists if you go to visit his tomb it is put near his tomb the stick with which Saint Anthony beat the devils and this Saint Anthony you know there was turmoil and young monks were disturbed by sexual obsessions and vision and whatever so Anthony was going around and whenever he could you know he grabbed the devil he said come here the guy appeared physically and then took the stick and pum pum pum, beating them badly and guess what the legend says, I mean this is the story about the life of Saint Anthony guess what the devils did they went and complained guess to whom? to Virgin Mary they went to Virgin Mary and they said look what Anthony is doing to us and in the next prayer Anthony had a vision, the Virgin showed herself to him and he said Anthony you should stop beating up the devils but he said mother, you know he was in ecstasy She said, Mother, they are coming and destroying the prayer and everything of all the young monks and so on, what to do? So she said, if they come and disturb you directly, then you have the right to defend yourself against them. But the fact that you go out after them to chase them, it's none of your business, because God has let them exist in this world with a certain purpose. And it's not yours to undo what God has done. That is why in the, the highest metaphysics, They say that although you should not follow the path of evil because evil is there just like a shadow to test you, still evil exists and it has its own meaning because if God would like it terminated it would stop existing in a fraction of a second. That is why your primary question if there exists by a law beautiful people who tell the truth and search for light and for spirituality and dark people who are always involved in lies and violence and manipulation and so on it's not a law, it's not something which requires it there have been periods in history where such people have lacked it is enough to read some history to see that there have been different communities who for centuries they lacked such manifestations they lived like in paradise, it was like Shangri-La you know, it was like perfect peace and no assholes around, no jerks around, but sometimes for the evolution of the world, for this dialectic opposition between light and darkness, for testing, for separating things, sometimes it is there, that means nobody is pushed by force to be evil, it's a choice, but the truth is that yes, exactly as they are, and I not so much institutions and organizations but yes we can put it on organizations also that there are institutions and organizations consecrated to spirituality and truthfulness we must admit that in spite of our best wishes and many people are very naive about this one there exist on this planet still today organizations and institutions which are firmly committed to everything which is devilish and I mean not that they uh, don't know knowledge, knowingly, they are committed simply to destroy, to lie, to do the things of the darkness. I'm not talking up just about the Satanists of LaVey and I don't know who, who are a bunch of ridiculous ones after all, I mean people who consciously proclaim themselves I'm a Satanist or whatever, but people who make part of all kind of institutions which through the agency of money, big money, through the agency of political manipulation, through the agency of media and a lot of things, they try to corrupt, they try to lie, they try to destroy everything which is spiritual, they try to actually go into the things of darkness. And according to the yogis, these days, these people are quite strong. In this time of history, this thing has become quite strong.
2: So what I'm getting at is that, yeah, there has to be a showdown with those people ultimately, but I'm talking, I'm talking about damage control and levels of pain. Therefore. If you let them get away with it, if if you're just a goody-goody and you never lie or whatever, you let them get away with stuff because they can take advantage of you and that causes a great amount of pain for a long time for a lot of innocents. Whereas if you take them on, and I guess maybe telling white lies, etc., but knowing about their level of lying and so forth, if you take them on at their own game a bit, you can contain
0: them. So sometimes yes, and sometimes uh, yes. I think. Or do you have, have to let
2: everything just totally? I think it was David
0: Icke on the internet. He said you cannot, you cannot work for peace. You must peace for peace. You know, yes. it's a kind of you cannot use violence to curb violence. It will never work because according to Buddha, it generates further violence, and yes. it it will be like a paradox. A but we don't know why it never stops you know, it's like we have tried our best, we have killed the jerk, there was one jerk who was the head of all these things, like as you said, you know, there appears a Hitler and he is the father of all lies or whatever, okay, somebody goes and takes a bitter responsibility and says, I'm going to shoot the guy or put him away or whatever, then you know what, there appears another one, this is the problem, yeah. it's like, uh, it's like you know, the nature is uh, fighting you back because you did not choose the right method to put him away, the right method is forgiveness, love, compassion. That means Mahatma Gandhi showed you can do it without violence. you just need to stand up bravely. That might involve that you are going to get it. You know, get beaten up, get put in prison. I mean you should stand up, but you should not stand up violently. You should stand up with your chest and says, "Right, kill me." you know? I'm ready, you know, take me. But I will not put up with your shit. I'm standing up and saying what you do is devilish, is lying, it is dirty. I'm a man of my principle. I'm standing up. Of course, I risk to be, to look like Don Quixote, right? Like a utopian fighting the windmills, you know. You are the only one in the world who has found out that, I don't know, these people are corrupt and you stand up. Yes, it's beautiful to be the only one in the world who is, you know, the fearless kind of person who says this. Mahatma Gandhi says, there is a beautiful in this and Mahatma Gandhi gave this way of passive resistance, you know it's exactly like you don't want, you know if if the whole population of a country says we are not going to put up with it we just sit home and look at you what will you do? you cannot get taxes you cannot do anything, you know with a nation or with a group of people who does not cooperate you can try to force them, shoot ten of them the others will say nothing they'll just look at you and say still we don't play game, we don't play ball with you. What can you do? Just pack and go. We are just waiting that you pack and go. How long? 30 years, you know? You cannot do anything. There will be no industry. There will be no shops open. There will be no clerks coming to offices. Everything is closed down. It's general strike. The nation has stopped. We'll find something to eat for the next month or something. Don't worry. You know, everybody has a few reserves or something, you know? We'll manage. But we simply don't play ball. We stop the whole machinery the whole nation closes down until you go and what can such a person do? nothing a group of people like this can be expelled this is the passive resistance it's a beautiful thing but of course you need to convince everybody on it you need to have the charisma of it if not you can do it for yourself and say I don't know everybody goes to the, to the rats you know. everybody goes down the drain at least I'm the only one who will oppose like you can do I don't agree with the way he did it and with all his mentality, but exactly in the style of Mishima, the Japanese poet. You know, Mishima in the 1950s, he said, Japan is going to the rats, the Americans are riding on it big time, and look, there is no more Japanese culture, there is no more Japanese, we are becoming a bunch of stupid yellow rats. And he simply, you know what he did, he took over a military base so to have media coverage, and then he killed himself, he committed seppuku like the samurais. He just lit his belly and he said, I protest through my suicide. I protest against the decay, the decadence of the Japanese. Mm. He couldn't stop it. Japan is what it is today. Mm. But at least Mishima, he died with his honor intact. I mean, he said, At least I'm not going to put up with this. You know, I'm just standing up and telling you all. I a protest against this thing uh, which is happening. He has to do it
2: public though. He kill If he just killed himself in his apartment or something, the authorities could have uh, covered it all up and he would have been an unsung, unknown martyr and then it would have been in vain.
0: Correct, but the authorities try to do this because these yeah. devilish people who are running the world conspiracy, yeah. they are very careful not to make new Jesuses and new martyrs because they know the power of martyrdom and therefore they always try to minimalize when somebody dies for a right cause or anything, you know. If you have somebody who wants to protest, that person who protests is to look like a madman, like a monomaniac, like a terrorist, like a loner, like an outsider, like you know, something, you know? Because uh, they don't want to create new martyrs. And still, truthfulness eventually prevails. You might find out that I don't know in how many times, I don't know who was considered to be a madman or whatever, actually gets restored to a status that that was a true revolutionary, that that was a true person of truthfulness. So the yogis say, truthfulness and the Divine always wins. It's just a trial, you know, the trial is exactly this, that you don't have confidence. Mm -hmm. If you don't have confidence, you say, nah, it can't be. Then you just choose the easy way out of it, you know, telling lies, doing. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com downloads.